When we learn to savor, intentionally drink in and recognize and acknowledge and honor the positive aspects of our lives rather than chew on the negative ones, we actually start to build our long-term sense of well-being. For all of us, this can disrupt the habit of being stuck in survival mode. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Our human brains do a lot of thinking. I mean, to the tune of about 70,000 thoughts per day. I did the math when I heard this. That's over 2,000 thoughts per hour, over 48 thoughts per minute. Okay, another study says it's more like 6,200 thoughts per day, but that's still a lot. Now, most of these are passing thoughts as our brains process a whole lot of what's happening in the world around us, barely noticed if at all. But what's really interesting to me is that, at least according to what researchers have found, a lot of these thoughts, including those that reach our consciousness, are what can be classified as negative thoughts, as in, watch out for this, avoid that, danger there. Our brains are basically constantly scanning our environment for danger. And the more difficulties you've actually had in your life, particularly trauma, the more likely your brain is to be particularly on alert. This phenomenon is something I hope you'll hang out with me as I riff about with you today. It's a continuation of the theme that I started in perfectionism and something I alluded to in that recent podcast. And as I've personally experienced, it's something we can learn to work with to our advantage and keep from becoming a disadvantage as it's so often apt to do. We can also pass this information forward to others in our lives, and you can even share it with your kids if you happen to have any of those hanging around. Okay, so here goes. This is how it went down for me about 10 years ago when I first started paying attention to this phenomenon in my own life and in my own head. I was on the phone with a friend who also happened to be a hypnobirthing teacher. I was sharing some self-doubt about a new endeavor I was wanting to launch and trusted her enough to share my inner negative self-talk out loud. It was a big gutsy project and I was in the weeds as it was going to be expensive to launch and I'm terrified of financial risk. I didn't know if people were going to want that service for me as if I was going to give a party and nobody might come. And I didn't know if I knew enough to do what I was trying to take on down to, seriously, don't laugh, I was even in the weeds that I fundamentally didn't have the genetic wiring to have what it takes, as if there is such a thing. Not only that, my partner, my husband, 
and my business partner, had his own survival mode stuff kicking in. His parents went belly up bankrupt when he was in college, leaving him to fend for himself on every level. So when I told him about my big, hairy, audacious goal, his scarcity stuff around taking risk went into hyperdrive, and he was adding to my doubts. And all the noise was drowning out this strong calling to create and launch this project. So there I was, an automatic negative talk pity party out loud on the phone with my girlfriend. Can you relate? Maybe not to it being out loud, but the doubting self-talk. My friend said, barely holding back her chuckling as the Yale-trained MD author and businesswoman on the other end of the phone with her was actually believing all the self-doubt stories. And in her usual, matter-of-fact, straightforward, but still very loving way, she said, girl, you need a hypnobirthing class. I laughed at the visual that this conjured for me. Then in my upper mid-40s, four grown kids, two grandkids, being pregnant, sitting on the floor, giant belly supported by pillows, breathing in and out. Not happening. But then I saw it and I saw exactly what she meant. Hypnobirthing as the metaphor I needed for shifting my mindset in the face of birthing something new. In the face of fear, of challenge, of a new and scary transition filled with self-doubt about whether I could do it. Hypnobirthing is about making mindset shifts. We reframe internalized notions we have about birth as unbearably painful, dangerous, and impossible to do into a way of looking at ourselves in relationship to birth as skilled, capable, and able to ride the intensity of the waves i.e. contractions to the other shore. Most importantly, it's about learning to recognize our inner fear dialogues, replacing them with thoughts that are messages of power and strength and ability. It helps women to build a thought vocabulary of capability and efficacy and backs it up with supportive breathwork, movement, and other helpful tools. As the lights went on in my brain, my gal pal went on to remind me that as a midwife and a physician, I would never say the discouraging, doubt-filled things to a pregnant or laboring mama or anyone else that I was saying to myself. I'd be telling a mama in labor that she's got the power and to stay centered in that, and I'd be working with her to do that. So why was I filling my own head with thoughts of inadequacy and incapability? And all of these thoughts were unwanted. Where were these thought patterns coming from in spite of an obviously efficacious life? It was like I suddenly heard the background music I hadn't really noticed before. Pretty sure this new painful thinking had something to do with the internalized bullying that sometimes not so tacitly comes hand in hand with medical training. It was time for a reframe, and that took me into a deep dive into the neurobiology of ants. Because I love neurobiology, yes, total geek here, and I wanted to find a new way of thinking and being that wasn't holding me back with anticipatory anxiety. Do you have ants in your brain? Have you ever experienced anything like the following? You're washing the dishes, reach to put away a glass, and it slips from your hands. Somehow you hear your brain saying, I'm always so clumsy, or why do I break everything? Or let's say you have tension in a romantic business or friendship relationship and you wonder, what's wrong with me? Why am I always screwing up friendships? Or you jump to the conclusion, well, I guess that friendship is just over. 
Or perhaps you meet someone new and assume from their posture or facial expressions that they just don't like you very much. And worse, it's some inherent fault of your own or that you did something to put them off. Or maybe you want to take a chance on a new job or career move and you think, I'd never get an offer or accepted for that. I'm just not good enough. Or I'd never get picked for something like that. My family just doesn't have those kinds of genes. Or you engage in a business or personal relationship that just doesn't work out, perhaps even costing you time, money, or a major emotional investment. And even if the person totally ripped you off in one way or another, your first thoughts about yourself are, I'm such an idiot, or I'm never going to find the right fill-in-the-blank babysitter, assistant, life partner. Where do these kinds of thoughts come from and why do we have them? Fortunately, neurobiologists, psychologists, and social scientists have given this a thought too, and they have some answers for us. On the most primitive biological level, our tendency to pay more attention to what could go wrong over what could go right is an evolutionary protective mechanism. Think of it this way. You're 11 years old and you're walking home from school with your best friend. And you happen to live in Bengal, India, where, yes, they still have Bengal tigers that eat people. So you're walking along laughing and bantering when you and your friends see the bushes ahead of you rustling, and you notice stripes. Your heart races, you become alert, your body freezes you in place, and you grab your friend's arm and urge him to slowly and quietly back away with you because you instinctively see the worst possibility, not just tiger but hungry tiger. Your friend, always the happy jokester who sees everything on the positive side, says, oh, don't be silly. That's just the breeze and sunlight playing on those striped leaves. Or wait, he says, it's Davy's big striped dog. And then your friend whistles and claps for the pooch to come play, while you continue to slowly back away. In fact, if it was a tiger, Who do you think is more likely to survive that scenario and pass on the serious fear of tigers to their children, both directly, but also possibly epigenetically? Exactly, the person who saw the danger. That's why, in our earliest human history, paying attention in a very heightened way to risks and threats was literally a matter of survival. And those more attuned to danger Those who tended to see the worst were not only more likely to survive, but that meant they were also more likely to pass down the very survival genes that helped them to do so, those that veer toward negative thinking. Our HPA axis, or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, if you want to get really fancy about it, which I've talked about at length in other episodes, on blogs, on my website, and that I deep dive into in my books, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution and Hormone Intelligence, is part of this important response system. It translates our perceptions of danger into the very physiologic responses that keep us safe causing us to fight, flee, or in the case of the tiger, freeze and back up slowly. The tendency towards seeing what's wrong with a scenario or what could go wrong has a name. 
It's known as negativity bias. Numerous brain imaging studies now demonstrate that we actually get much bigger neural hits from being exposed to negative stimuli in testing situations, meaning our brains, and in turn, our biological responses are more activated and imprinted by things that threaten us than by most of what we would consider positive stimuli. Our brains are more powerfully influenced by bad news and negative experiences. Another classic example of this is, which do you think you'll remember more vividly? The snake that you saw on a hike or the beautiful scenery along the way? Most people remember the snake because negative experiences, which most people consider encountering a snake to be, tend to imprint on us far more strongly than positive ones. And having personally had the experience on a hike in Los Leones Canyon in LA a few years ago, I can tell you, I definitely remember that five-foot rattlesnake that crossed my path just three feet ahead of me and my daughter on a sunny day on a crowded trail, while the rest of that hike is definitely a bit more of a blur. I'll never forget that there are big rattlesnakes in them thar hills, and that's a useful bit of information. But is it one that should make me anxious about ever walking there again? Negativity bias is so hardwired into our brains and biology that it appears to come online in our brains when we're barely out of the womb. Studies of infant brains show that by as early as three months old, babies begin to show signs of negativity bias in social interactions. And most parents notice that by around eight months old, their babies have a very strong sense of stranger awareness, crying sometimes vociferously when approached by or handed over to someone who isn't mom. Fast forward out of primitive times and into our adult lives, when as adults our frontal lobes are fully formed. The ability to imagine risks, problems, and possible bad or even worst outcomes allows us to anticipate and prevent bad choices and outcomes we'd all prefer to avoid. Taking the wrong job, making the wrong financial decision, picking the wrong mate. The ability to anticipate danger is an important quality one would also want one's doctor, accountant, or car manufacturer to be amply endowed with. An excellent diagnostician, for example, can hold both hope and see the worst possibilities simultaneously, thereby making sure to check to make sure that you don't have them or, if you do, that you get early diagnosis and treatment. An excellent accountant will help you both to spend and save your money wisely while keeping an eye out for alarming trends in the market to protect your money, and so on. The ability to be self-critical, to entertain negative thoughts, to see the worst when we need to, keeps us not only safe, but also allows us to learn from our mistakes so we don't repeat them. Some negative thinking, if we want to call it that, because really it's the ability to have imaginative anticipatory problem solving, is a good and important and normal thing. Our brains are hardwired to do it. Yes, I will definitely be wearing hiking boots on that trail with rattlesnakes, and I will not be sticking my hands 
under fallen logs. Unfortunately, and here's where the problem lies. On the one hand, we no longer face the types of big threats our ancestors faced, lions and tigers and bears. So we've evolutionarily outgrown the need to constantly scan our environment for danger. We don't need our negativity bias to be quite so front and center as it is for so many of us. And on the other hand, we live in a world that's frequently, if not practically constantly, activating our stress response, our HPA axis. So even when we don't need to lean so heavily toward a negative outlook, it's being chronically stimulated. Add to that if you've experienced early childhood trauma or even adult trauma, and that instinct to see the world through gray-colored lenses can become your default. Eventually, we can get stuck in survival mode thought patterns, seeing so much of life through the lens of what could go wrong, and even interpreting things as going wrong, even when they're not. And so often, things do go right. That's where the next phenomenon comes in automatic negative thoughts, or ants, as I mentioned in my perfectionism podcast. This is a term coined in 2001 by Paul Rosen and Edward Roisman for words or sentences that seem to come out of nowhere, almost as if they're pre-programmed into our minds, and that often seem scolding, doubting, negative, fearful, self-critical, or like a warning. They may stand alone, or commonly be followed by a whole avalanche of more negative self-talk or worst-case scenario thinking. As in, if I go for a walk on that trail I mentioned, and now all I can think of or that keeps popping into my head is danger, 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 snake, accompanied by anxiety. Even though the chance of there being an actual dangerous snake encounter there is close to zero. Automatic negative thoughts, however, on a biological level, can become what we are primed to remember, be on the lookout for, and be limited by. So why am I talking about all of this on a podcast about women's health? Well, for one, I've experienced all this, and working with a lot of women tells me I'm not the only one. And because I'm out here rooting, like fist pumps in the air rooting, for you to live your best life. And research shows that negativity bias and its accompanying automatic negative thoughts can adversely impact how we think and feel about ourselves, our abilities, and our lives, and can dramatically influence the choices we make for and the chances we take on ourselves. Further, so many of the women who come to me to see me as patients, whom I teach as students in my online courses and at conferences, and even many of you who reach out to me through my social media channels and emails, aren't just struggling with physical symptoms, hormone problems, and health challenges. Many of you are struggling with chronic anxiety, depression, sleep problems, driven not just by hormones, but by worries and stresses. And so, so many feel stuck unable to take chances on living their best lives because they're besieged by thoughts that act like the gatekeepers on taking chances, on trusting that the best can actually happen for them. So they remain in jobs, relationships, housing situations, working with doctors that aren't working for them, etc., not simply because they have to, but because they're limited by self-doubt and worst-case scenario thinking. Again, a good thing to work through with real pros and cons, but not become paralyzed by. Negativity bias and ants, again, those automatic negative thoughts, 
affect our relationships, particularly how we perceive and then therefore interact with others. It can lead us to assume the worst, feel mistrustful, misinterpret and internalize facial expressions and words that weren't even meant for us, ruminate on something that was said, possibly even misinterpreting it as negative, and thus can keep us defensive, socially anxious, or closed off. Conversely, if we feel anxious or lack confidence or self-esteem or self-efficacy, it can even make us overly disclose or glom onto people who might not be the best for us or seek social approval. Because as I discussed in my podcast on perfectionism, the need to fit in and have approval is also a baked-in survival mechanism. And hey, the bottom line is none of us wants to be bathed in a sea of unhappy, unproductive, and unhelpful thoughts, which can be a a profound impediment in our lives, holding us back from taking chances and even important and calculated risks, like trusting in a friendship or good romantic relationship, taking that career leap, like going back to grad school or applying for or accepting that new job, taking a risk on moving somewhere new, deciding to have a baby, writing that book, taking that art class, selling that painting. The list goes on. And as I'm saying this, it's very likely that you have a secret risk or chance that you'd like to take. If so, I encourage you to hit pause just for one second. You can totally do that. I'll be right here when you come back. And write down that inspiration. What is that thing that you really, really know you want deep down, but you're afraid to take a chance on? because of negativity bias and automatic negative thoughts. Now, another reason I'm talking about all of this stuff is because being stuck in survival mode can take a real toll on our physical, biological health. And in my world, I take care of whole women's health, not just bits and parts. Mentally, this way of thinking, especially when chronic, can lead to the anxiety, depression, and sleep problems I just mentioned and treat so often in women in my practice. It can also lead unintentionally to ways of soothing those feelings, stress eating, drinking, binge TV watching, doom scrolling through socials, and so many other habits that affect your health. As I mentioned, it can also have a profound impact on our relationships and our ability to grab life by the horn, so to speak, because you're always anticipating what can go wrong. In other words, it can make you habitually pessimistic, and that can even affect how you feel about your body and whether you can even heal from something that you're struggling with. And I'm talking about it because I care, and I know that being stuck in survival mode can also have a harmful impact on your physical well-being as I've discussed elsewhere in blogs, podcast episodes, and in my books. But in brief, it can affect your immune system, hormones, gut health, and metabolism, and can actually lead to changes in your brain, including depleting neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin that we need to keep moods up, further reinforcing low or anxious moods, and it can actually shrink the size of the brain while increasing the size of the brain's fear center the amygdala, exaggerating and exacerbating this problem because that's partly where neurologically hardwired negative thinking comes from. And it can possibly increase our long-term risks of dementia 
while reducing neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to rewire and heal itself from trauma. It's also a really important clue that you are stuck in survival mode. Negative chronic thoughts and negativity bias can be a symptom. So rather than beating yourself up, it's time to activate some radical self-compassion. If you notice yourself stuck in a loop of perseverative thoughts, it's time to dial into what's going on. Are you tired, overworked, overwhelmed? Is something going on in your life making you feel unsafe, unsupported, insecure, like money, relationship, or work challenges? Are you facing an illness in yourself or a family member? Are you in intense impasse and the state of the world is chronically triggering you? Or maybe it's some or all of the above. The amazing news is that it's also something you can learn to recognize, shift, and tame so that you can use this to your survival advantage without having it hold you back or take you down mentally or physically. Now to clarify, I'm not talking about feeling negative about what's going on in the world around us. Systemic racism, lack of paid maternity leave, economic disparities, social injustices, the economy and climate change. These are just a few examples of bigger issues that I hope would make us react and not with a smile. This is not about toxic positivity either. Sadness, anger, frustration, and many other feelings that have negative connotations are not so black and white. They can be important indicators of when something is not right in our world or something is not right in your personal world. But thoughts are powerful. They shape our choices. They also shape our neurobiology, the inner circuitry that influences our weight, our immunity, our adrenal function, our energy, our food cravings, our sleep, mood, mental focus, and numerous other influences on our health. Most of us have ants in our brain. That is automatic negative thoughts. And okay, an ant here or there never ruined a picnic. Like my self-doubt about the project I wanted to start, an ant or two can be flicked away or carefully moved if you're averse to flicking away bugs with a quick reminder and some shifting of your thoughts. But in the extreme, think about putting your apple pie near an anthill. Ant colonies are actually a condition many of us are familiar with. Anxiety. They're like a mental vice grip around our creativity. Ants can keep us from taking leaps, trying new things and can prevent us from enjoying and trusting in the goodness of the things that are happening in our lives. One of my common ants, for example, is that after I've had a really good business year, I'll chalk it up to a fluke and think, well, maybe next year won't be as good and it will be back to the financial drawing board. My ants like to tell me that I'm never quite good enough and that success can be gone at any time. Social media, by the way, can really exacerbate ants by throwing in another common social bias called the halo effect, which is when we assign positive qualities to people who we perceive as more attractive, more wealthy, etc., and assume that they are inherently better, generous, smarter, or more trustworthy. So we compare ourselves negatively and feed the ants even more. On a deep evolutionary level, yes, a negative bias may be our default, but it doesn't mean it needs to dictate the path or take center stage all or even most of the time. It's just meant to show us 
where there are pitfalls along the way so we can be aware of and avoid them. We can actually rewire our brains. And in neuroscience, there's a term that describes this. What's wired together fires together. We aggregate negative experiences and beliefs and stories so that when we see any shred of evidence of that showing up in our lives, it reinforces the belief that the world is an unsafe place. It triggers survival mode and all of its physiologic reactions and reinforces behaviors that can be self-sabotaging and further reinforces unhelpful, unproductive beliefs. But it's really true. If you never apply for the job, you'll never get it. And yes, the person who seems luckier than you because they did get the job is the one who actually applied for it. So you can see this negativity bias can be a self-reinforcing negative loop. It keeps you from taking chances. It makes you judge yourself and makes you compare yourself negatively to others. How to change your mind. One of my favorite quotes, and that I feel is at the heart of shifting out of chronic survival mode, negativity, bias, and ants, is from Einstein, who said, the most important decision we make is whether we believe we live in a friendly or hostile universe. So how do we harness our badass selves so that we can step out of being stuck in fear and live this big, beautiful life more boldly? There are three important keys I've identified over the years to successfully reframing inhibiting fear-based unhelpful thought patterns or replacing the ants with aunts, automatic, useful, new thoughts. Yes, I totally just made that up because I needed an acronym. You could say apts, automatic, positive thoughts, but that just sounds a little Pollyanna to me. But if you like it, run with it. Apps, automatic, positive thoughts. I'm sticking with the aunts because we can all use some good aunties in our life. And because useful thoughts seems more interesting to me than simply positive thoughts. How can we recognize when our thoughts aren't useful to our well-being? And how do we reframe those? Here's how I go about it and invite you to join me. Number one, recognize the ants. Ants, the automatic negative thoughts, can be big or small and are commonly such a baked-in part of our monkey brain chatter that it's so familiar that we don't even notice it. Sort of like the hum of your refrigerator. You don't even notice it's going until that electrical outage shows you just how noisy that background noise really is and how quiet things really can be. So the first step is simply to slow down enough on a daily, regular basis to hear your thoughts and drop into what's going in your body when you're having those thoughts. Where are they in your body? What do you notice? It's also worth paying attention to the actual voice your thoughts might show up as. I know the voice of my husband in my head, my mother in my head. And these thoughts are very specific and called interojects. There are other people's words, projections, fears, and worries that we've heard expressed either subconsciously when we were young. For example, I can remember as a very young girl, maybe four years old, laying in bed one night overhearing my newly single mom telling a friend on the phone, I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table next week. And this still pops up for me as such a primal interoject when I'm considering anything that requires taking even a safe and calculated financial chance, like investing back in my business or my home. When you hear those voices or have those thoughts, remind yourself that's their stuff, not yours. 
Changing these patterns requires getting mindful and recognizing those thoughts. They might look something like this. You're putting on a dress and you find yourself saying in the dressing room as you look in the mirror, I'm too fat. I'm always too fat. My mother was too fat. My grandmother was too fat. I'm never going to fit into this dress. I'm not smart enough. I could never do that. I always fail. Or how about it might sound like one of these. There's something wrong with me and that's why I didn't get that job. That job that I got was a fluke or maybe they meant to pick someone else. She's so much more accomplished than I am. And wow, she's 10 years younger too. She doesn't really like my company and that's why she hasn't called me back since our date. Be especially on the lookout for binary, black and white, all or nothing thinking. Sentences that have words like always, never, can't, and every are typically ants. Again, fill in the blanks as you notice your default thoughts or patterns. Then remember, they're just thoughts, not truths. Number two, create new thought habits. We all need tools that let us decompress from and let go of the anxious feelings that typically accompany those ants. Tight chest or throat, feeling weak or nauseated, rapid heart rate, can't concentrate. Deep cleansing breaths are like throwing the windows open on ants. An ant or two may always crawl in now and then, just like at any picnic. Again, they're here for our survival. We want to intentionally think through problems and even worst case scenarios. I do it as a doctor every day. It's called creating a differential diagnosis, and it's how we make sure we're addressing the big scary things. It's when the ants invade the picnic that we need to shake out the picnic blanket. Here's how to do that with your thoughts. Simply shift your frame, literally. Stand up and get a change of scenery. Step outside. Look out a window. Take off your glasses if you're wearing them. Rub your hands to warm them and cup them over your eyes. Breathe in some fresh air. Yes, even if you need to throw on a coat and brave the cold for a minute. Or open a window and breathe in deeply if you can't get outdoors. Hydrate. Hydration can do wonders for the brain and survival mode. Move your body. Do a balancing yoga pose or a power pose like warrior two. Put on some pump you up tunes and dance or take a quick brisk shower. These are all things that can help us physically frame shift and that can then thereby lead to a cognitive or thought process frame shift. Number three, change the lens. Because our brains are wired to automatically remember the negative thoughts and experiences more strongly than the positive ones, it's just a fact. We have to work a little harder to learn to emphasize and remember the good experiences, count our successes, and count our wins. When we learn to savor, intentionally drink in, and recognize, and acknowledge, and honor the positive aspects of our lives, rather than chew on the negative ones, we actually start to build our long-term sense of well-being. For all of us, this can disrupt the habit of being stuck in survival mode. And if you happen to have a history of trauma or high ACE scores, can begin to replace the evidence that life is all about survival with a new and more helpful and more productive and more effective story for living in the present and believing in your future. Neuroplasticity the ability of the brain to rewire itself, to reform itself, 
shows us that we can form new connections, rewrite old connections, and write new stories. For the default thoughts to not dictate our default beliefs and actions, we have to learn to quickly recognize and adjust, to refocus and recalibrate to the new story, to the new belief, to see things with a new lens. And the more often we do this, the more often we practice, the more often we catch ourselves in that recognition and recalibrate, the more automatic and easier it becomes and the less frequently those automatic negative thoughts occur and the more we can shift from a negativity bias as our constant default to a more optimistic approach to our lives. One way to do this is to make it a practice to intentionally find one to three aspects of an experience or an encounter that were enjoyable, engaging, helpful, inspiring, and find something new you learned. Even if you didn't, for example, get the job or the promotion or whatever it is that you were leaning into. Hopefully you did. But let's say you go to a movie. And your usual instinct when somebody asks you how the movie is to think of all and cite out all the negative things. Try something new. Instead of just rattling off all the things that weren't good about it, start by thinking about what are the one to three things that you can find that you actually did appreciate or enjoy or like or that were helpful, or at least you learned something from it. It can really reframe how you approach your life and start to bring more enjoyment more learning, more curiosity into all aspects of what you do. We can also reconsider the evidence from our lives. Your aunts may be saying those automatic negative thoughts may be saying one thing, but the reality may be very different. So for example, one of my actual default aunts is that I'm not wired for success. And I know that's probably a real surprise to hear because That's not how I'm perceived externally. I'm not perceived as someone who's not successful, but it's one of my own personal demons. So I sometimes actually have to intentionally interrupt that thought by looking at the obvious evidence from my personal and professional life that clearly demonstrates to me that that's not true. And we all have some personal demon, or I would say most of us anyway. I I hope you don't. But if you do, you probably have an automatic negative thought about yourself that comes up easily. And particularly when you're trying something or when you're under stress or when you're tired. So I encourage you now, again, hit pause if you can and take a minute to find three facts in your life that disprove that thought that comes to you automatically. For some of us, it might be, I'm not lovable. For some of us, it might be, I can't do something that I set my mind to. For some of us, it might be that you're not primed for success or you can't achieve that certain thing. Find three facts in your life that disprove that thought and write them down. If you want to do it right now, go for it. I'll still be here, but just come right back. There are also some aunts, automatic useful new thoughts that you can take from me or make up your own. Some people call these mantras. Now, mantras don't work if you're stuffing down the negative thoughts and simply saying to yourself, you know, I am happy, I am successful, I da da da. You have to do the work of actually recognizing the thoughts and intentionally becoming um, aware of them and intentionally really working to shift that HPA axis back into a place of calm and safety. For me, 
the ones I love, are I am the author of my life. I've got this. I know what I need to do. I listen to my inner wisdom. When I throw a party, people show up. Also, flip the script the next time you find yourself thinking, I'm never going to, whatever it is, be able to exercise as much as I want to, lose that weight, get that job, find the love I'm looking for. Everyone else is thinner, smarter, richer, married, has kids. She always looks better, gets invited before me, has better luck. Remember, never, everyone, always, should. These are all kinds of examples that this is an automatic negative thought, a kind of primally imprinted way of thinking that your brain is default to. And sometimes when I do have an automatic negative thought, I simply thank it for protecting and helping me get to where I am now and let it know with a nice deep breath and an exhale that it's no longer needed. I've got it from here. Whatever you choose from these options, the important thing is to remember that you can form new neural pathways through forming new thought habits. The more you do it, the stronger the new pathways become, the easier it is for your thoughts to begin to prefer those new pathways that you have set aside as if you're walking on a trail that is at first filled with brambles, but the more you walk that trail and walk that trail and walk that trail, it becomes a path of desire. Back to hypnobirthing. Birth is a powerful and relevant metaphor for being overwhelmed by new challenges, challenges that feel bigger than our capabilities or those that can bring us to our knees or make us want to quit and run the other way. It's a time when it's common to be filled with doubt and so many people reach a point in labor where they even say out loud, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. But often, as with birth, these very situations are ones of tremendous breakthrough. Once through the hurdle, we're in a powerful new phase of our lives, be that motherhood, a new career that we've always wanted but were afraid to take the leap on, a new relationship, or in my case, having the confidence to ride out my inner voices of doubt to create the next best-selling natural health book for women, one of my dreams, or create the program that I was really scared to create. Now, you might not be planning to have a baby anytime soon or ever, so hypnobirthing might not be the right thing for you. But you may be hoping to take on some exciting personal or career chances that you've been putting off because of self-doubt that feel as big and heavy as having a baby. There may be mighty leaps and changes in your future, but automatic negative thoughts are keeping you from jumping in. You may be hoping to birth your dreams, start an effective new career or program, or even something that you just want to do in your life that you've been challenged by before, like learning to dance or play an instrument. That's where the hypnobirthing metaphor comes in. In getting out of survival mode, that both our evolutionary biology and our modern world seem to be pushing us into on the regular, we can make a conscious choice to trust more in life, to live our life to our biggest, fullest, boldest expressions of ourself. That project I was afraid to launch that I was telling my friend about, it turned out to be one of the most fulfilling aspects of my work to date, teaching other practitioners to work in my model of women's healthcare, to trust in that, to have the confidence in that and to offer it so we can change women's healthcare together. And it's not only become one of the most fulfilling things I do, but it's become a powerful central part 
of my livelihood, too. I took the plunge, and none of my worst fears came true. In fact, the evidence supports exactly the opposite. And I learned to trust my instincts over my doubts and over the interjects of others even more strongly along the way. The great Sufi poet Rumi said, whatever you are seeking is also seeking you. I'm a firm believer in listening to those whispers, those inclinations, the passions that have become quiet because we've shushed them for so long, but which really want to sing loud and clear from a mountaintop that this is who you are and this is what you're here to do and bring. I also want us to be more comfortable doing what is more common amongst men and the very wealthy, taking chances and even being fine with failing now and then because it's okay. We've got this and we can learn and grow from it. I'm in favor of a new way of thinking and being that frees us from the confines of anxiety, depression, sleep problems, and other physical symptoms that women are struggling with now due to chronic hyperactivation or burnout in the HPA axis. These don't simply have to be our default either. There is another way. And I would like to tell you, like I would tell any mama I'm supporting in labor, You've got this, and I'm here with you on the journey, reminding you of your strength along the way, should you forget. Thank you so much for letting me riff with you today, and I'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.